Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter 13. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Mark 13, challenging passage. Uh, And I think a lot of that has to do uh, because of uh, evangelical culture can have a tendency to to see this passage as something that's, that's referring to the end times. Uh, and uh, not just to the end times, but really what to be looking out for. And, and so we can um, lead to some questionable in- interpretations, to say the least, of, of reading current events and, and reading them into uh, this passage. And so we'll look at, at current political leaders, current countries, and we'll try to say, okay, this is what Jesus is referring to here. And, and I just want to be clear from the beginning. Uh, if that's what you're, you're hoping for in this passage, uh, you're going to be disappointed. We're going to work our way through this text, and, uh, and you'll notice that there are some really detailed sermon notes that, that go along with this sermon. Um, I encourage you to grab those from our website to follow along, uh, because we really want to know what exactly is this passage saying, and then from that point, once we understand that, then to say, okay, what exactly does this mean for me today? Now, one of the hallmarks of our denomination since its very beginning is this question, where stands it written? In other words, we are a church and we're a denomination that takes very seriously what the Bible has to say. And it should be a habit of us to always have our finger in the text of Scripture. And that's obviously my hope every single Sunday morning. But especially today, when we approach this passage that has a lot of interpretive questions, and a lot of us come to it with some, some preconceived notions, And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to just first look at Mark 13 as a whole. We're going to look at the entire structure of this chapter, and then after that, we're going to zoom in specifically to the first 23 verses of this chapter. And as we're working our way through this text, uh, I think this passage just really boils down to, to one truth, and that is simply this, Jesus is worth trusting. That's really what this passage is about. Jesus is worth trusting trusting, not just for our salvation, but to come through on every single promise that he has made in his word. Jesus is worth trusting. And so as we look at a lot of different things this morning, and we talk a lot about interpretive questions, and and it might get a little technical uh, this morning, don't lose sight of that truth, that all of this is telling us that Jesus is worth trusting. Let's pray as we approach God's word. Uh, Jesus, uh, we, we first want to just confess that you are worth trusting. We, uh, we confess that with our lips. We believe that. And also at the same time, uh, there are times and seasons of our lives where uh, that, that may not um, be fully true. And so uh, alongside the father in Mark 9 who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We cry out, Lord, we believe you are worth trusting. Help us to trust you more. And God, as, as we approach this text that um, does uh, in some degree speak to the end times and, and your, uh, your return, we, we just say alongside the church throughout the ages, come Lord Jesus. And God, I, I pray as we look at this passage, you would give us a, a greater commitment to your word, that we would um, look at this topic and as we do so, you would cultivate within each and every one of us a, a greater um, expectancy for your return, not necessarily in a way that, that leads to looking uh, at current events as evidence of, of the impending end, but instead that we would be like servants who are waiting for their master's return in your parable that you tell us in this chapter. 
God, help us to, to live the totality of our lives in light of who you are and that you are coming soon. And we ask that you would bless this time in your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as we jump into Mark 13, I just want to remind us a little bit of the context of this chapter uh, to this point. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. Tens of thousands of Jewish pilgrims have come from all over the world. Now, back in Mark 11, when Jesus first enters into Jerusalem, we actually see this really startling moment where Jesus pronounces judgment upon the religious system of Israel, the religious leaders of Israel, because their, their faith is bankrupt, because their Messiah has come and no one is ready for him. No one has received him. And this moment is actually the fulfillment of the prophecy that we see in, Mar- in Malachi chapter 3. Jesus enters into the temple, Malachi 3 verse 1, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. But as I just mentioned, no one is there to welcome the Lord. No one is there to welcome their king. And so Jesus says the judgment is coming because of this. Malachi chapter 3 talks about this coming judgment as well. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against those sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust against the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And that's exactly what Jesus does in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we have this uh, story of Jesus. Uh, it's oftentimes called Jesus cleansing the temple. I think in Mark's version of, of the story of Jesus, it's actually out uh, Jesus' judgment of the temple. It is an acted out parable of judgment uh, upon Israel for their wicked ways, for their false devotion, which we actually saw last week. And Jesus' judgment on the temple in Mark chapter 11 is important because it helps us understand what Jesus is about to say here in Mark chapter 13. Now, I mentioned earlier, uh, there's this common misconception that Mark chapter 13 refers solely to the end of the world and to Jesus' return. And, and I, and I, w- I want to point out that, that part of it does refer to Jesus' second coming. That's very clear in certain parts of Mark chapter 13. And yet, it is also true that while some of Mark 13 refers to the end of the world, it refers to the end times and, and to Jesus' return, not all of it does. In fact, if we, if we were to break apart Mark chapter 13, we'd see first there's this introduction, Mark 1, or 13, 1 through 4. So there's this introduction that really sets the stage for Jesus' teaching, and then it follows this very distinct pattern. It's called an A-B-A-B pattern. In other words, we see one topic, A, followed by another topic, B, followed by a return to that first topic, A, and then going back to the second topic, B. And that's what we see in Mark chapter 13. Jesus starts with one topic in verses 5 through 23, A. Jesus isn't talking about the end times. He's actually talking about the destruction of, Israel, uh, of Jerusalem and of Jerusalem's temple, which took place in 70 AD. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So that's the first A, and then it goes to B in Mark 13, 24 through 27. Here, Jesus shifts topics, and he does talk about his second coming, talks about the end times and, and his return. After that, we have a return back to A, this topic of the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in 70 AD. That's in 30, or 28 through 31. And then he goes back to topic B, this discussion about his return. And that is in 32 through 37. He goes back to this parable 
about the importance of being ready for his return. And we're going to look at the, the second half of this chapter uh, next week, verses 24 through the end of the chapter. Now, if you think that that's as clear as mud, uh, all this A, B, A, B pattern and, and all that kind of stuff, quite all right. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we're going to take so much time looking at the structure of this passage this morning. Um, so what, we, what I want to do is just start with verses 1 through 4, kind of look at this introduction, uh, and that will help us understand the context of what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 13. So let's go ahead and, and jump in verse by verse, starting with Mark 13, verse 1. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, we talked all the way back in February about the, the magnificence and the grandeur uh, of the first century temple. I don't expect you to remember that, but, but do note that this is one of the most magnificent structures in the entire world. It, it would inspire awe from, from all people especially the disciples, especially devoted people uh, of the Jewish religion. So imagine their shock when this beautiful temple, this beautiful picture of God's greatness isn't, uh, Jesus doesn't respond to, to the disciples' words by, by saying, you know what, this is beautiful, it's a beautiful statement of the greatness and the goodness of our God. Instead, he says this in verse 2, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's Jesus' response. Here's this beautiful temple. And Jesus says, it will be utterly destroyed. Records show the size of some of the stones used to construct the temple over 60 feet long, nearly 20 feet high, weighing over 800 tons. Remember, this is, a, this is millennia before the idea of a controlled demolition. So Jesus' words here could only refer to one thing. It could only refer to the destruction of Jerusalem itself. There's no way that the, the Jews would allow Jerusalem or their temple to be destroyed unless Jerusalem itself was destroyed. It would be impossible to destroy the temple without also destroying Jerusalem. Now, understandably, the, the disciples are floored by this news, and once they are outside Jerusalem, they stop at the Mount of Olives. This is a hill just right outside Jerusalem. You can see, actually, all of Jerusalem. You can see the Temple Mount in those days. And as Jesus is sitting there on the Mount of Olives, I, I'm sure that the disciples have just been thinking of Jesus' words as they've left Jerusalem. And so four of his disciples asked Jesus a question, and this is what we see in verses 3 and four. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So this is the first important thing to note as we work our way through this passage. Look at verse four. Look at it closely. Verse four the disciples ask Jesus not just one question. They ask him two questions, right? They ask him two questions, and the first one is what? Well, the first one is when, right? Notice what it says. Tell us, when will these things be? What's the second question? The second question is what sign, or what will be the sign when these things will be accomplished? So, so we have two questions from the disciples that, that Jesus has just said, hey, the, the, the temple is going to be destroyed, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, 
And the disciples, they work up the courage and they, they ask him two questions. They say, when and what sign so that way we know it is about to happen. So the first thing to, to take note as we work our way through this passage is the questions the disciples ask. But, but also, and this might be a little too much English uh, uh, or <laughs> too, too nerdy when it comes to the English language for you, but the word these and these two questions the disciples ask in verse 4, it's a really important question or really important to note, right? These is a pronoun. It means it's referring back to something else. It's referring to something else. So, so here's the next question. When the disciples ask this question, what, uh, when the disciples ask, when will these things be? And what is the sign that these things will occur? What are they talking about when they say these things? All right, so what is these referring to? And based off the context of Mark chapter 13, it's pretty obvious, right? It's referring back to Jesus' prophecy in verse 2, that the temple, and by extension, Jerusalem, will be destroyed. So if you're not big in, in writing uh, in your Bible, um, go ahead and take those sermon notes and circle the words, these things, in verse 4, both times, and then draw an arrow back to Jesus' prophecy in verse 2. Because the disciples here, they've just heard Jesus say, the, the temple and Jerusalem are about to be destroyed, and the next thing that we see in the Gospel of Mark is they say, well, when? And, and how are we going to know that this is about to happen? So the disciples are asking this question, when is Jerusalem, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Now, starting in verse 5, Jesus begins to respond to the disciples, and unless Jesus just completely ignores the disciples' question, begins to talk about something completely different, has, has nothing to do with the, with the question of the disciples, Mark 5 through 23 are a response to the disciples, right? Jesus is, is answering their question. And this is actually significant in the Gospel of Mark because we see many times that the disciples actually refuse. They, they, don't have, they, they don't know what Jesus is referring to. And instead of asking questions, they remain silent. So this is an important note where, where we see actually Jesus delights in answering the questions of his disciples. It's just that most of the time the disciples don't actually ask those questions. And so here... Jesus is delighting to answer his disciples when they ask, well, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And that's what we see in Mark 13, verses 5 through 23, their response to this question. We're actually going to see next week, there's a really clear break between verse 23 and verse 24. Verses 24 through 27, that's the B pattern. Remember the ABAB pattern? It's where Jesus begins to talk about the return of the Son of Man. And as I was studying this passage this uh, past week, I found a number of reasons um, why, why we can say confidently that, that verses 5 through 23, talking about something other than the end times, instead is actually talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, a number of those are in those sermon notes. I just want to highlight one uh, this morning, and it's simply this. While reading Mark 13, and go ahead and, and read through it slowly, and while you're reading it, Notice there is a distinct change in the audience in verses 5 through 23 to verses 24 through 27. Verses 5 through 23, the audience is you. Jesus is always referring to you. He's talking specifically to the disciples. But then when we get to 24 through 27, this talk about the second coming, Jesus doesn't say you anymore. He uses a more general they. 
Of course, the you implies that the, the events Jesus is referring to are actually going to take place quite soon. The disciples, those in their generation, they should heed the words that Jesus is telling them. In contrast, they communicates the opposite, that the disciples will not be around for the second coming, for the return of Jesus. In other words, the burden of proof, I think, lies with those who would see that Mark 13 is completely referring to the end of the world. It's possible to, I think that it's possible for, for people to look at it this way, but, but the, the burden of proof lies with you to prove that. And, and the simplest reading of Jesus' words here is to interpret them as referring to the destruction of Jerusalem that takes place again in, in 70 AD, we already know that, and the words of, of verses 24 through 27 referring to something different, his return. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot more we could say about this topic. I think some of our questions that, that we may still have will be answered as we work our way through the rest of this passage. Again, I'm going to refer to those notes a lot because some of the questions you may have, I, I don't have time to refer to in this sermon, uh, but, but hopefully I answer some of those um, in those notes. So let's go ahead and um, dive into to Mark 13. Uh, we're going to look at 5 through 23 and, and really first just consider its meaning and then second, uh, what is its significance for us today? So first, uh, verse 5, Jesus begins to answer his disciples' question in verse 4, right? Disciples ask these two questions, when and what will be the sign? And uh, before Jesus answers that question, it's significant to note what he does. Um, he first doesn't give them the sign. He actually gives them three non-signs. I know that language is a little weird, three non-signs. Um, Jesus starts in verses 5 through 13. Before he talks about the sign of Jerusalem's destruction, he actually gives them three things that are not a sign that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. More generally, I think verses 5 through 13 are just signs of a broken creation. They're part of the brokenness of this world. They're not a sign that the temple is about to be destroyed, that, the, that, the, um, that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. They're just a sign that, that we live in a broken world where sin exists. Consider the first one. It's found in verses 5 and 6. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. First sign of a broken creation is false religion. False religion that leads people astray. And, and this is something that is, that is true throughout the ages, right? False religion, this this really is death that's disguised in, in the form of, of life, has been around from the moment that, that the first sin occurred in the garden. It, and it's true today, right? We see false religion all the time. It's everywhere, not only in other religions, but also in, in non-religions like secular humanism. And Jesus says, be on guard. Beware. Don't be led astray by these things. But notice that Jesus isn't referring to other religions as much as he is, is referring to a, a false version of Christianity. Uh, false Christianity takes many forms today as well. We could talk about the, the false devotion of the scribes from last week, this, this hypocrisy where it, it may look good on the outside, but on the inside it is dead and, and decaying. The health and wealth gospel is another example of this today. It's really just the worship of the American dream, this idea that, that God wants you to be healthy, happy, and rich, and all you need to do to, to achieve that is to have more faith. Christian nationalism is another form of this, where it takes 
A lot of politicians do this. Takes Jesus and makes him a servant of the United States and of the United States goals. And we, we see this blending of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of our nation. Watered down Christianity says that Jesus is there to make you happy. He's a nice accessory to your life, but he will never ask you to do anything that you are uncomfortable with. And Jesus says, be on guard. Don't be led astray. But the answer is how? The answer, of course, is, is something that we talked about earlier, this question, where stands it written? Where stands it written? You may have heard something that sounds really good, something about Jesus you have never heard before, but your question should always be, where stands it written? Someone may say to you, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And what they mean by that is God exists to make you happy. And God would never do or never want anything that makes you less than happy. Where stands it written? Because the Jesus we have encountered in Mark's gospel says something quite different. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Someone says, I cannot get sick from the coronavirus or other ailments because I have faith. Or the suffering that I experience from sickness or disease, all I need to do is just pray for healing and it will come to pass. It may sound great, but where stands it written? Many of you know that I am blind in my left eye and I would love nothing more for there to be a simple solution to the brokenness that I experienced for, in my life for decades, since I was born. But as I look at the scriptures, I, I don't see that. Where stands it written? Jesus says, be on guard against false religion, especially those that have this veneer of Christianity. That's the first sign. Not of the temple's destruction again, but just a sign that we live in a broken creation. Second sign, verses 7 and 8 and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Notice that line there, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So here's the second sign, not of the, uh, of, of the end, not the sign of temple, the temple's destruction, just of being in a broken world. Conflict and natural disasters. This is another sign that we live in a broken world where sin exists. Now, that doesn't say, that's not to say that we shouldn't try to alleviate suffering whenever possible, but also we shouldn't be led astray into thinking that these are signs of the end. Again, notice the end of verse 7. The end is not yet. Jesus makes it very clear. Says the exact same at the end of verse 8. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Creation, actually, if you look at Romans 8, has been in the birth pains, the groaning for redemption since the fall. It's a part of a broken world. Jesus tells his disciples that international conflict, no matter how large, is not a sign of Jerusalem's destruction or the end times. No, it's something that's, that's rooted in the brokenness of creation and the sin of humanity. Conflict has existed since Cain killed Abel, and on a national level, as soon as there were enough people for there to be nations, conflict has existed. And Jesus says, the same is going to be true through, uh, until the end. So don't see that as a sign. Don't be surprised by these things. What's more, Jesus also mentions natural disasters like earthquakes and famines. 
It doesn't matter how big the natural disaster, whether it's an earthquake or it's a forest fire taking place on the West Coast, whether it's Hurricane Laura that smashed into the Gulf Coast this past week. It doesn't matter if it's a famine brought about by drought. All these things are a part of a creation that is not the way that it is meant to be. So Jesus tells his disciples about this, and and the implication is just endure through these things. They are part of living in a broken world, and it should increase our longing for the new creation. Conflict, natural disasters, they're just a part of a broken world. They're not a sign of the end. Jesus gives us a third sign, verses 9 through 13. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here's what Jesus is saying here. The Christian life always has been and always will be one of persecution. The Christian life always has been, always will be one of persecution. Remember Jesus' words as he told his disciples earlier in Mark 8, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, believers should not be caught off guard when persecution comes. It doesn't matter where it's sourced. Jesus specifically mentions from, uh, persecution from Jewish authorities, these councils and synagogues. He mentions persecution from the Roman government, governors and kings that will divide families showing the the severity of this persecution, because a commitment to Jesus is greater than a commitment to your blood family. And yet Jesus doesn't just say, be ready for it. He also says, be comforted in it. If the thought of suffering for your faith terrifies you, no matter how costly that suffering may be, Jesus says, don't be afraid, don't, don't worry, because the Holy Spirit himself will be with you. That's an incredible gift. That God doesn't just say, you know, be ready to suffer, for my sake, but that the God who formed the world and calls us to this costly path of discipleship also cares for us and will comfort us in our need. So Jesus says, be ready. This is a part of the brokenness of a creation. You might uh, wonder, verse 10, it says the gospel must first be preached to all nations, and I I think it was in the 1800s, there began to be this, um, this emphasis I think wrongly interpreting this verse to say that we can usher in the end times, that the only thing that's left before God uh, returns, before Jesus returns and establishes the new creation, is we first have to reach all of the unreached people groups in the world. And if you've talked with me, uh, I, I'm passionate about reaching out to, to unreached people groups, um, but I don't, I don't see that as, as what is being talked about here. In fact, if you look at, at Acts chapter 2, and you look at all of the, the places where these Jews who are at Pentecost are coming from and are in Jerusalem, and you compare that to the table of nations that we see in the beginning of Genesis, 
I think one of the things that you can argue is actually that, that Luke, the author of, of Acts, is arguing that the entire world actually heard the gospel at Pentecost. And Paul actually uses this language as well. In the book of Colossians, he talks about how the whole world has now heard the gospel. In Romans, he says, you know what? All of the Gentiles have now heard the gospel. This is, of course, not referring to literally everyone has heard the gospel, but it's a statement of the gospel has gone forth to the, throughout the Roman Empire and that the people uh, in the surrounding nations of the Roman Empire have heard the gospel. And so I don't think that this is referring to something in the end times and missiology of of you know, we have to reach all of the nations before the end times come. As I actually think that this is something that took place in the New Testament. And Jesus says that persecution is actually going to be used by God to bring forth the gospel. The gospel is actually going to be spread because of persecution. And people will hear it who did not have a chance to hear it. So be ready for it. It's not a sign of the end. It's a part of being in a broken world. So be ready be on guard, because the one who endures to the end, even if that means the end of your life, will be saved. All these things, false religion, natural disasters, conflict, persecution, all these things are, are not a sign of the destruction of the temple. But then we get to verse 14. We see this transition from Jesus. He gives these three non-signs, and now he's going to give the sign, the answer to what his disciples ask for. Notice his language, beginning of verse 14. He says, but when... Okay, so the disciples back in, in verse 4, they ask this question, when and what sign? And then Jesus goes on to this description of these aren't the signs. And then he says, but when you see X, then the destruction is coming. That's when you need to flee. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So here's the sign. The abomination of desolation. All right, so we may not have any understanding of what that is. Um, what on earth is the abomination of desolation? And to answer that, we got to go back to the Old Testament. This would have been something that, that Jesus' disciples would have been familiar with. And, and so when, when Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, all the disciples went, oh, yeah, okay. That's, that's what we got to look for. Uh, it, it comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel actually prophecies around 500 B.C. about this abomination of desolation. I think the language is actually this abomination who will make desolate. This abomination of desolation that will desecrate the temple. Okay, there's the language. Desecrate the temple. So that took place in 500 B.C. In the year 167 B.C., so 167 years before the time of Jesus, there was this Greek ruler. His name was Antiochus IV. And Antiochus IV implemented pagan sacrifices in the temple, in the Jewish temple, and this was absolutely an abomination to the Jewish people. And this led to this Jewish revolt of the, of the uh, people of Israel against the Greeks, and this was actually su successful. It was surprisingly successful. They rededicated, they cleansed the temple. And, and this remembrance of their freedom from the Greeks is, is actually a really important part of uh, the Jewish religion. And is still celebrated today in what we know as Hanukkah. Now fast forward to Jesus' time, you know, first century. Every single Jew, every single Jew, that's not a hyperbole. Every single Jew, including Jesus, would have been aware of the events of 167 B.C. 
It was just a part of every single thing. They would have known this. They would have known about the Acts of Antiochus. They would have known about the subsequent Maccabean revolt against the Greeks. Just like today, you know, virtually every American is aware of what Independence Day is, what the 4th of July is. What's more, the overwhelming majority of Jews wouldn't just know those events, but they would have also interpreted Daniel when he talks about the abomination of desolation that that actually came to pass in 167 BC, that Daniel's words came true during the time of Antiochus. In other words, when Daniel refers to the abomination of desolation, that was the desecration of the temple by Antiochus IV. All right, that's a lot of backstory, but I think that's important for us to understand what Jesus is referring to when he talks about the sign here in Mark 13. When Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation, he's referring to something that's in the exact same vein as what took place over 150 years earlier. In other words, the abomination of desolation is when someone is in the temple, they desecrate the temple, and Jesus says, when you see that desecration of the temple, then you know that the temple's destruction, and by extension, Jerusalem's destruction, is coming, and it's coming soon. Many different suggestions, because this has already taken place, again, uh, many different suggestions of what exactly Jesus, the actual event that Jesus has in mind, what is the actual abomination of desolation. Some suggest that there were these Jewish zealots who actually took over the the priesthood, and they they installed a new high priest who was just a puppet for their uh, political ambitions to to kick out Rome, and this was a desecration. Of, of the religious system of, of Jerusalem. Some people say that. Some people say it was actually uh, Roman soldiers who made sacrifices to Zeus in the temple, which, again, took place right before they destroyed Jerusalem. Either of those could be possible. You know, you could make a, a, a case for either of those. Uh, the specifics aren't what it's, what's important, though. The specifics are to note, or excuse me, the, the important thing to note is, is that the abomination first refers to a desecration of the temple. And second, it actually happened. In other words, it's important for us to note that, you know, Jesus is, is trustworthy. He's worth trusting, like we talked about earlier. And Jesus' words came true. Jesus' prophecy came true. The rest of Jesus' words concerning this sign of Jerusalem's destruction, they speak of the severity of the suffering and the judgment. Verse 14 again. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such a tribulation that has not been seen from from the beginning of the creation that God has created until now and never will be. And if God, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Jesus is basically saying, hey, when you see those days, when you see this sign, get out of Jerusalem. Flee, run away before it is too late or you will be killed. In other words, see this sign and respond right away. And that's actually what took place. There's an early Christian historian. His name is Eusebius, and he actually says that, the, um, that the, the Christians, when they saw the abomination of desolation, they actually left. They fled. 
Jerusalem. It was a, another sign. He interpreted the events of 70 AD as being fulfilled, or as the fulfillment of Jesus' words here. You might say, what about the language here about tribulation? Because Jesus says, tribulation that has not been from the beginning of creation until God until now and never will be. The Lord had not cut, days, those sh- uh, cut short those days. No human being would ever be saved. That doesn't re- sound like it's referring to 70 AD. That sounds like it's referring to the end times, right? But also, we have to look at the Old Testament, and this is language that God uses to refer to other moments of destruction in Israel's history. He uses very similar language to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC by the Babylonians. This language is hyperbole, uh, describing the severity of the destruction. You know how uh, Jesus says, not one stone will be left unturned. That's, that's hyperbole as well, but it's referring to the complete and utter destruction of the temple, the complete and utter destruction of Jerusalem. And that's why it's crucial for you to see the sign and then to flee, to run away before it is too late or you will be killed. See the sign and respond. And that language, see the sign and respond, is something that we see in Mark's gospel a lot. See, it does us absolutely no good if we see the signs and we don't respond correctly. Elsewhere in the gospel of Mark, the signs are what Jesus is doing and the implication is who Jesus is and response is to actually respond to to who Jesus is with repentance and faith. And here we see the sign, this abomination of desolation, the response is to flee Jerusalem, save your life, because judgment will be poured out on Jerusalem. Again, going back to Jesus's uh, actions in Mark 11, the the, the parable, the acted out parable uh, of judgment upon the temple. And Jesus ends his prophecy in this way, And then if anyone comes to you and says, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all these things beforehand. Be on guard. Beware. Look out. Have open eyes. See the sign. And respond. That word respond is really important. Because it is a whole lot easier to think about how to respond if this isn't something that has happened yet. Right? I mean, let's just, let's just recognize that. And I think that's one of the appeals of saying that this actually hasn't taken place yet. Because it's a whole lot easier to see the response to this passage as to look for these signs. To be ready for these signs. It's a whole lot harder when this took place almost 2,000 years ago. To say, okay, this is how I should respond to this passage. It's, it's, it's difficult to, to wrap our, our minds around to process how we should respond to this passage and, and I said, uh, the, last week I, I talked about this massive gap in the scribes between their Bible knowledge and actual devotion. And if our only concern this morning is to just get this passage right, and hopefully we've done that, 
But if we don't let it transform us through the power of the Spirit, then we've completely missed the point of what God intends for us to take away from this passage. So, so what's, what's the point? Living almost 2,000 years after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, how does this passage transform our hearts and lives? I wrestled with that a lot this week. Uh, consider just three thoughts. First, this passage is a charge to persevere in the midst of a broken world. To persevere in the midst of a broken world. It's, it's this call to perseverance. If this passage gives us uh, things that, uh, uh, gives us signs that are really just signs that we live in a broken world. Not signs of the end. They're just part of, of broken world. False religion, conflicts and natural disasters, persecution. And that's just part of of living in this world. It's a charge for the church throughout the ages, regardless of whether the end is tomorrow or 2,000 years from now. It's this charge to persevere. It's this charge to to finish the race well. It's not just something for those who, uh, it's not just something that matters for those who live at the, in the days of Jesus' return. It's for each and every one of us. We should not be surprised by false religions. We should not be surprised by these false forms of Christianity that twist God's word to make it say what they want to say. We we shouldn't be surprised when creation is broken and and cries out for redemption from the, the suffering to which it has been subjected by sin. We shouldn't be surprised when our devotion to the gospel leads to hostility from others. This passage is a charge to persevere, not because the end is tomorrow, but because we just live in a broken world, and that's, that's part of it. That's the first thing. Persevere in the midst of a broken world. Second, this passage is also a charge to live as though these are the last days. Live as, these are, 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 as though these are the last days. It, it might sound a little bit paradoxical or, or you know, contradictory to what I just said. I spent, you know, a great deal of time this morning talking about why this passage isn't about the end times and then say, hey, you know, live as though it is the end times. Uh, Well, actually, I didn't say live as though it's the end times. I actually said live as though it is the last days, and that's an important distinction. Um, Something we'll pick up on next week, but I think it's worth noting this morning. New Testament, uh, when it talks about the age that we live in, it refers to the age that we live in after the cross, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We actually live in the last days now. When the New Testament refers to the last days, it's, it's not referring specifically to the end times. It's referring to the days that we live in right now. It's the fact that, that Jesus has already purchased salvation. He has, he's been victorious on the cross. And far from leading to complacency, recognizing that we live in the last days. And, and as we'll see again next week, that, that Jesus' return is soon, and we don't know when exactly it's going to be. That doesn't lead to complacency. That actually should lead us to fervent pursuit of Jesus and to holiness. We should recognize that Jesus' return is very soon. And as he says in next week's passage, we have to be ready. This passage is a charge for us to live in light of the second coming, to live as though we live in the last days because we actually do live in the last days. Third, this passage is a charge to hold fast to Jesus' words on the future. It's a charge to hold fast to Jesus' words on the future. It should inspire us to have confidence and Jesus' prophecies, when Jesus is talking about the future. Here's what I mean by that. 
if Jesus's words about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple came to pass, and not just came to pass, but actually came to pass exactly as he predicted it 40 years earlier, if we can, it, it, then we know that Jesus is a prophet, right? We, we can say that. If Jesus did this and this came to pass, then Jesus is a prophet. And when we look at Jesus's words next week about his return, which hasn't happened yet, we can have confidence that they will come to pass. In fact, Jesus' words, not just on this topic, but every topic, are worth trusting. Because if this passage has come to pass, then it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus knows what he is talking about. And if you think that God is, keeping, is late in keeping his promises, if you ever wonder, hey, is Jesus actually coming back? Or if you even go as far as saying, is all this Christianity stuff real or is this just made up? Run to this passage. Run to, to Mark 13, 5 through 23 to look at it and say, oh my goodness, wow, this took place. This happened exactly as Jesus said it would. And if that happened, just exactly as Jesus said it would, then I can know that Jesus is worth trusting. And that's about all of his promises. It might seem like he is late in keeping his promises. But Jesus knows what he is doing. Jesus is worth trusting. It's worth trusting in all of his promises. Worth trusting in the uncertainty of our future, not just globally, but your future as well. Jesus is worth trusting. And as we close in prayer, let's just, let's resolve to be a people who look back to the work of Jesus, the words of Jesus with confidence that he will continue to work on our behalf in the future. And then all of his promises, he will fulfill in his time. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would instill within each and every one of us an increasing confidence that you are exactly who you say you are, that you will do exactly what you say you will do. That we can know these things beyond a shadow of a doubt. Forgive us, Lord, when we doubt. When we say, well, what about? Or why not now? Or why haven't you acted this way? Help us to respond with trust. Because you are worth trusting. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.